the topic of the sermon tonight. This is a, a standoff or a standalone, a one-off um, sermon, topical sermon, but still couldn't leave the book of Romans. You know, I tried, but we're back in Romans for a standalone sermon. And the topic is um, politics and religion. So, you know, the old saying goes, there are two things that you should never discuss at a dinner party, politics and religion. Yet, here we are at a dinner party discussing politics and religion. And so this sort of uh, dinner party etiquette, ethic, you know, of not discussing religion and politics because those are emotional issues that tend to divide and, and ruin a good dinner party, right? That sort of thing of uh, politeness and etiquette has morphed into uh, this sort of idea that politics and religion don't go together at all, right? The separation of church and state, after all. Tony Campolo, who is a Christian, let's call him a motivational speaker, he says, mixing religion and politics is like mixing ice cream and manure. It doesn't do much to the manure, but it sure does ruin the ice cream. On the other hand, G.K. Chesterton said, I never discuss anything else except politics and religion. There is nothing else to discuss. And so what is the answer to the question? Should we mix politics and religion? So spoiler alert, the answer that I'm going to present and argue for tonight is yes, we do. Not only must they go together, but they can't not go together. There is an inescapable connection between religion and politics. And this is what Chesterton saw, that religion, especially Christianity, is totalizing. It is totalizing, meaning that all of life is swallowed up under religion. After all, the name of our organization is Coram Deo Christian Fellowship, before the face of God. And so all of life is lived Coram Deo, even your political life even your acts of activism or your private time behind the little blue folder thing in the voting booth. Those are all done quorum Deo. So the question is then, how do we put these two things together faithfully and in a way that honors God? Because we have seen these things put together wrongly, haven't we? We've all seen examples of religion and politics mixed together wrongly, and that is like mixing manure and ice cream. So the question is, if it's inescapable, if we have to put these things together, is there a way that God prescribes for us to do it? And how do we go about doing that faithfully in a way that honors Him? So before we jump in, two presuppositions that are going to support and undergird this entire message. One is the existence of God, that there is a creator God who is sovereign and all authority is in his hands. And we know this from general and special revelation, meaning general revelation that God has revealed himself clearly in the things that he has made. But we also know this from the special revelation of his scripture in the Bible. 
which leads us to the second presupposition, and that is sola scriptura. Our, our only infallible ultimate standard of authority that we submit to is scripture alone, sola scriptura. The Bible is the foundation of all of our faith and practice and is the foundation of our worldview. So sola scriptura, but not just sola scriptura, but also tota scriptura. That's one you don't hear about as much, tota scriptura, which essentially means all of scripture. So scripture alone and all of it. Everything the Bible has to say is authoritative. So when the Bible speaks to these issues, it is just as authoritative as it is when it speaks about salvation through faith in Christ. So those are sort of some presuppositions, some laying the groundwork before we move into the topic. So uh, with that said, we'll read uh, Romans 13. So please stand together as we honor the reading of God's word. We'll be reading the first seven verses of Romans 13. The word of God says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that is light to our path, and we pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would say to us tonight that we would be conformed to the image of your Son, and that you would receive glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So as I said, this is going to be a topical message. We are going to work through Romans 13 a little bit, but it's not going to be line by line, verse by verse kind of thing. Um, we're, what we're trying to do is allow this text to be a sort of a foundation for civil government as a legitimate authority established by God. So the title, as I said, Politics and Religion, a Sabbath Dinner Conversation. Four points. Civil government established by God. Civil government is established by God. Number two, we'll talk about the separation of church and state. What does that mean? Do we believe in that? Do we agree with that? Number three, love your neighbor. And number four, we'll look at examples from American history. So four points, a little different take tonight, uh, but here we go. Number one, civil government is established by God. And we see that in Romans chapter 13. And what, God, what Paul lays out here for us is a sort of prescriptive text for what the civil government, uh, what the role of civil government is in God's economy. 
God's design for government. And what we see here is that all authority, all authority is a delegated authority. Let me say that again. All authority is a delegated authority. Look at verses one and two. It says, there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. So do you see that? God has established ruling authorities. Um, he has instituted them. And this authority comes from God. It's a delegated authority. Another thing we see here in the establishment of civil government is in verse four. What is the role of the civil magistrate? Well, Paul uses actually religious language to refer to the civil magistrate. Look at this, verse four. It says that the, uh, the ruling authorities are God's servant. He is God's servant for your good. That word servant there is diakonos. Diakonos, that might sound familiar to you. Deacon, that's the word we get deacon. And so Paul's saying the civil magistrate, the ruling authorities are God's deacon for your good. What do deacons do? Deacons were established in the church to serve those in need. So the, the apostles and the elders of the church would be busy in the ministry of the word, teaching the word, making disciples and uh, going out on missions and things like that. And then there were the, the poor, the needy, the widows who would be left at home and in need of help. And the other leaders in the church weren't necessarily able to do that or it would take away from their time teaching the word to do that. And so deacons were established to serve the church, to serve those um, who are in need. And Paul says that the ruling authorities, the civil magistrate, is intended to be God's deacon in the same way. So the government, the civil government, is meant to be a servant to the people, a servant for their good. Like a lot of us, we, when we think about civil government, we kind of think about it the other way around, that the government is up a, sort of a higher level and we serve the, the governing authorities, but actually it should be the other way, that the civil authorities are serving the people under God's authority. It is a delegated authority that they share and they minister, they serve as deacons of God. And, and what specific way that they serve? It, it says in verse four that they approve of what is good and punish the wrongdoer. They approve of what is good and punish the wrongdoers. A pretty simple job description, really, uh, to uphold justice, right? Uphold justice. God has given a sword of justice to the state. The state holds the sword of justice and they approve of what is good and they punish the wrongdoer. Now, when we start talking about good and wrongdoing, the question that should be coming to your mind is, by what standard, right? Have y'all gotten that tattoo yet, like I told you? <laughs> By what standard? What do you think the Apostle Paul has in mind as the standard of goodness? Do you think he has uh, Nero Caesar, who was most likely the emperor at this time, as the standard of goodness? Probably not. I bet the Apostle Paul has 
God's character and God's law in his mind as the standard of good and wrongdoing. And we can tell this from the first 12 chapters of Romans, right? And so we have to ask our question, if God has established the civil magistrate, given them legitimate authority to be his servants, wouldn't it follow that they are to serve and approve of what he says is good and to punish those who do what he says is wrong? Wouldn't that follow? Wouldn't that make sense? It wouldn't make sense to say that these are servants of God who then look to some other standard other than God's standards to operate on. It's like if I were your, your boss and I gave you a task, hey, um, y'all set up the tables in a, a U for the supper. And then you got, you know, you made a complete T out of the tables. I would be like, wait a second, it's not what I told you to do. I'm the one who's giving you the job, giving you the task. You're serving under my authority and you just went to a completely different standard other than my word. That'd be, that'd be crazy, that'd be dumb. But what God does is he gives authority, he delegates authority to the civil magistrate to serve as his deacon, to approve of what he says is good and to punish those who do what he says is wrong by the standard of himself and his revealed word. Paul continues on with sort of religious language of the civil magistrate in verse six. In verse six, so look with me there. It says, for because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. So the logic of what Paul is saying here is that you pay taxes because the state is legitimate. It's a legitimate thing that needs to operate in society. We need the sword of justice to uphold good and to punish wrongdoing. So therefore you pay taxes um, to the state and the civil magistrate is God's minister. And the Greek word there is letergos. Letergos sounds like liturgy, right? It's the same word, it's the Greek word. And when we look in the Greek Septuagint, letergos is one of the things that the priests do in the temple. They lead the worship, the letergos. They serve, they minister in the temple. So Paul is saying the logic in his argument here is that as the priests serve God in the temple and are supported by tithes, the civil authorities serve God in the sphere of the state and are supported by taxes. See, there's a parallel there. Those who minister in the house of God, who's ministered in the temple, and, and we move that into the new covenant, those uh, pastors who receive their compensation through the tithes and offerings of the church. In that sphere of the church, and we'll get talk about sphere sovereignty in a little bit, in the sphere of the civil ruling authorities, there are ministers who do that work in that sphere who are supported by a type of tithe, a type of offering, if you will, a tax. So this is how God has ordained that civil a government be. It's a legitimate thing. He's given it specific parameters, a specific calling, and he calls those who would serve in those roles to do so under his authority and for his glory. So what this means is that Christians are not anarchists. Christians are not anarchists. Um, what is an anarchist? An anarchist is someone that means without law. And so it's, it's someone who says there's no king. I think I'm got that word wrong. Um, there is 
complete individualism. Everyone's a law unto themselves. Uh, we should have no government at all. That's not the Christian position. The Christian position is that there is a legitimacy of the state as ordained by God. Uh, we, we could go deeper, and we don't have time for this tonight, but we would see that the biblical picture of the state is a much smaller state than we have today. Uh, there's a, be a much, I guess you would say, uh, freer system in, in ways um, in the biblical idea, uh, but there is legitimacy of the state. So we can't leave here and say, you know, down with the government, it's just us, right? God has established the government. He's established someone to bear a sword. Why? Because we're fallen. Because we need someone to bear the sword of justice. Because we commit acts of injustice. And God cares about that. And he's righteous. And so therefore there is just punishment to be delivered by the state. And the state is the institution that God has given that authority to. So I'm a pastor in the church. I have authority within the sphere of the church. I'm a father. I have authority within the sphere of my family. But I, I'm not a ruling authority in the sphere of the state. If, if someone, you know, um, cuts me off in traffic, I can't pull them over and give them a ticket. It's not in my sphere. If someone harms someone I love, it's not my job to take revenge. God has given the sword of justice, the sword of vengeance to the state to be weighed out with due process. And so we see how this begins to work. God has given that to the state. It's legitimate. Okay? And that leads us to the second point. What about the separation of church and state, Clint? You're saying that we're mixing religion and politics. What about the separation of church and state? Doesn't your Bible say something about the separation of church and state? Didn't Moses write that somewhere? Well, he didn't write it in those terms. But you might actually be surprised to know that the separation of church and state is actually one of the most misunderstood phrases in our society today. And you might actually be surprised to know that the separation of church and state is actually a Christian idea. If you are thankful for the separation of church and state, you should thank a Christian because we gave that to the world, right? We see this, and we do see this as early as Moses, um, but we see it in early church history. We see it in the, the setup of Israel where there's a distinction between the king, the kingship, and priesthood. Those are two different offices. We see this in the Protestant Reformation where the church in the Middle Ages had kind of swallowed up the state. And so that the church was the state, the state was the church. The reformers saw the error in that. And one of the first things they instituted is this separation of church and state. They saw the problem of that. But the phrase that we're all familiar with comes from Thomas Jefferson. Uh, Jefferson uh, received a letter in 1802 from the Danbury Baptist Association. It's always the Baptists stirring up trouble. The Danbury Baptist Association in Danbury, Connecticut, wrote a letter to Jefferson in 1802 
Um, and in the Jefferson's response to them, he used this phrase, a wall of separation between church and state. So what did he mean by that? See, the, the Baptist concern there in Connecticut was that a future magistrate would, in their words, assume the prerogative of Jehovah and make laws to govern the kingdom of Christ. You see their concern. Their concern is that, hey, if you read the letter, they're like, we don't believe that you're going to do this, Jefferson. We thank God for you, like you're amazing. They, they're, they really um, compliment him, but they, they say, we do have a concern that a future magistrate would arise and, and assume the prerogative of Jehovah. In other words, only God has the authority to make laws to govern the church. Their concern was that a future uh, executive or legislator would come along and start making laws that determine how Christians could worship. You know, it would be like the, the Congress making a law that says, um, when you observe the Lord's Supper, you have to use unleavened bread. And we would go, wait a second, that's not your, your lane. What does the United States Congress have to do with how we observe the Lord's Supper? Or you should only sing hymns in three, four time. <laughs> or when you sing those hymns, you must wear a mask. Or when you walk through these doors, you must be vaccinated. You see how we just took it out of the 1800s and brought it right into the day? So the Baptists were concerned that a civil magistrate would meddle in the governing of the church. Why? because that has happened so many times in church history, especially to Baptists. You know, there was a time in the Reformation that, that me, people who I, who I find to be theological heroes, would have thrown me off of a bridge and watched me receive my third baptism. That literally happened. The Anabaptists who believe that you must be baptized upon a confession of faith, they were baptized as infants, infants, not infants. They were baptized as infants. And they believed, based on conviction in the word of God, that they must be baptized after making a profession of faith for it to be a legitimate baptism. And there were reformers and Roman Catholics alike who literally threw Baptists off the bridge into the river and they called it their third baptism. Brothers and sisters in Christ, doing this to each other. Church history is messy, guys. And so there is quite a historical precedent for Christians to be concerned with the separation of church and state and that we need to hold to it, but we need to understand it rightly. So the question we must ask is, where is the wall of separation? Where is that wall of separation that Jefferson talked about? Is it between church and state or is it between God and state? See, as Christians, we believe in the separation of church and state. There are two distinct rules that are two distinct spheres that God has created. But we do not believe in the separation of morality and the state or God and the state. And neither did the founders of this country. And so we need to talk a little bit here about this concept called sphere sovereignty, sphere sovereignty. Anybody know a guy by the name of Abraham Kuyper? All right, some of you need to read the back of your Quorum Deo t-shirts, okay? 
<laughs> there's a quote from Abraham Kuyper on the back of your t-shirt. Uh, Daisy, can you turn around and let us see it? Move your ponytail. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Kuyper uh, was a politician. He was, I believe, the prime minister of the Netherlands. The prime minister of the Netherlands. Um, and um, he kind of clearly communicated this concept, the seer sovereignty, that we see many other Reformed theologians um, communicate. And the idea here is that God is the sovereign one of all. He is supreme. The sovereignty of God is therefore administered in different spheres, right? We talked about this um, sphere of the state already, that God ordained the state. He ordained the office of the civil magistrate. That is a sphere of legitimate authority that exists under God's authority. Another sphere that God has established is the church. He's established legitimate authority over the church. This is a separate sphere from the state. The, the, the state has the ministries of justice, the ministry of justice um, and um, national security, defense. The church are given the ministries of word and sacraments. Uh, and then we have the ministry of the family. It's another institution that is instituted by God that is a separate sphere with legitimate authority that's given the ministries of, of health care and welfare and education and things like that. And so what we see is these differing economies, these differing spheres of legitimate authority working together in the lanes that God has established under his sovereignty. And this is the harmonious, peaceful way of society that God has designed. So that's sphere of sovereignty in a nutshell. Let me give you a, th a few passages of scripture. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, it says, He, Jesus, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. See, all sovereignty comes from God, who is the only sovereign. You see that? And he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. If you grew up a Christian, you've heard that phrase your entire life. King of kings, Lord of lords. But have you thought about what that actually means? Jesus is the King of of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Ephesians 1, 20 through 23. God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You see that all authority over every power and dominion, all things are under his feet. Jesus himself says this in the Great Commission, Matthew 28. And Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and where else on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. There's a lot of people that are fine with Jesus having all authority in heaven. But the minute you start acknowledging that he has authority on earth, we have a problem. 
Separation of church and state. <laughs> right. Amen. Jesus is Lord. Those are all consistent statements. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Revelation 1.5. This is written before any prophecy. So this is present tense. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. And we shouldn't be surprised by this if we were familiar with our Bibles. Psalm 2, the second psalm in the Psalter, speaks of this, this great king of Jesus. It says, now therefore, this is verses 10 through 12, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see that? There is a call in the Psalter to call the kings of the earth to be obedient to Christ to serve the Lord with fear and gladness trembling, to kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. That is legitimate political discourse. It's legitimate political discourse. I wrote a letter to Raphael Warnock, the good reverend, and called him to the scriptures that he claims to teach and called him to faithfulness, to the commandments, saying, Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. He's heard that passage before. He's going to have to give an account. He calls himself reverend. He preaches in the church of Martin Luther King, Jr. There is legitimate political discourse that God gives us in his word. This is a reality that all rulers, whether they have the title reverend or not in their name, will face. They are called to serve the Lord with fear to rejoice with trembling. And so where, where have we been? So we've established that civil government is a legitimate sphere of authority which Christians should honor and seek to be obedient to Christ within. Okay? If God has established this sphere of civil government, it's legitimate. He's given it authority. Then we should honor that authority. We should respect that authority. As it says in, in Romans, that we show honor to whom honor is due, respect to who respect is due. But we should seek to be obedient to Christ within that sphere of authority. Whether that is us holding political leaders accountable or whether that's you getting involved. Maybe that's you pursuing a political career. Some of us need to be county commissioners. I'm ordaining Elijah. <laughs> you need to be a county commissioner. You need to be on the, the city council. See, so far we, we've put everything, all of the stock, you know, in presidents. That's the only thing that matters. Actually, you could have way more effect on culture and society and your actual life locally um, than you could. But that's not the topic, but the, I guess it sort of is. You should be obedient in that sphere of authority and seek to steward it well. See, what a lot of times is faithful Christians just say, oh, that's manure. We don't want it to mess up our ice cream. And so we just leave it as manure, right? When, when God has ordained it and blessed it under his word, rather than stewarding it rightly, 
we hand it over to those who don't know God. And what are they going to do with it? They're going to mishandle it. They're going to missteward it because they don't know God. They're in their flesh. Their, their hearts are deceitful, desperately sick. Who can understand them? As Jeremiah says. And so Christians need to be engaged in this sphere because it's something that God created and ordained and calls us into. Which leads to point three. I believe that politics is one expression of love your neighbor. It's one way in which we love our neighbor as ourselves. Remember that. What does Jesus say? It's the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbors as yourself. The word politics comes from the Greek word polis. Polis, which means essentially city. And, and God tells his people in exile in Babylon to do this, Jeremiah 29, 7. He says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. God tells his people in exile to seek the good of the city, not just your synagogue, but seek the good of the city where I sent you into exile. God has sent you guys to Valdosta, Georgia, whether by birth or because of VSU. He has sent you to Valdosta, Georgia. Seek the welfare of this city. There are many ways we do that. And just one of those ways is political discourse, political speech, political involvement. That's just one way. Don't hear me say that, that this is the, 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 what do they say, the silver bullet. I'm not saying that's what it is. I'm just saying it's one way and it is a way that Christians have neglected. Seek the good of the city where God has sent you. As we said, the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says that the whole law is summarized in two commandments. Love God, love neighbor. Love God, love neighbor. And if it's the whole law, then it's the whole law, which includes the civil and judicial law. That means when you read the judicial codes and, and Deuteronomy, that that is a way in which we can love our neighbor. Because Jesus says the whole law is summarized in those two terms. So, love your neighbor. Don't burden them with unjust taxation. Love your neighbor. Uphold justice. Love your neighbor. Defend them against tyranny. Uh, on this point, we, we need to address this. There, there have been some objections on the sort of social media sphere, twist sphere, of the idea that Christians shouldn't be concerned with protecting their rights, right? We shouldn't be concerned with protecting our rights because Jesus set aside his rights and suffered. So Christians following Christ we shouldn't be about protecting our rights. Rather, we should just set them aside and suffer as Jesus did. But when we're defending our rights, we're also defending our neighbor's rights. After all, Jesus says, love your neighbor as who? Yourself. The scripture tells husbands to, to love their wives. A, woman, a man who loves his wife loves himself. Right? It's not this sort of dichotomy. So when we defend our rights as, as 
human beings made in the image of God, this isn't from a necessarily, or it shouldn't be from a place of um, selfish, self-preservation. You know, it's at odds with the gospel, but it also includes defending and protecting the rights of your neighbors and of the generations after you. The generations after you. And, and, and you guys aren't thinking about that yet. You need to be. Generations after you. It's coming quicker than you think. And you're laying the groundwork now for the generations to follow you. Even if you, here's something to think about, because we are all connected as humans. Even if you never have children, the way you live this life and the things you stand for in this life and the things you promote will affect generations that follow you one way or the other. So faithfulness in the moment is a blessing to generations that follow you, whether they come from your loins or not. And God calls us to that. So defending rights isn't simply self-serving, but it's also defending the rights of your neighbor, loving your neighbor as yourself. And so when we do this, by what standard, right? By what standard? We looked to God's word. Jesus says, love God, love neighbor. Where do we find out how to love our neighbors? In the law. Love is in the fulfilling of the law, the scripture says. And so first we have to get over this antinomian stumbling block. Antinomian is just a fancy theological word that means against law, no law, lawlessness. To understand that God's law is good for society. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God's law is good for society because some people say like you want like sharia law or something do you want like cut somebody's hand off when they steal something it's like no it's a different god it's a different standard of good and evil i'm calling for the prince of peace to be the one in charge the god who's good listen to this isaiah 42 verses 1 through 4 this is prophesying the coming of Jesus and what his ministry would be like in his kingdom. It says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Do you think about that as the ministry of Jesus? Bringing justice to the nations? Isaiah says it is. It says, He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law, his Torah. So what are the nations waiting for? The law to go forth from Zion. That the Prince of Peace who would bring forth justice to the nations and establish justice in the earth that they might receive his law. Now, when we start talking about law and religion, immediately, I'm sure I'm not the only one who've had this objection come up. You can't legislate morality. You can't enforce your morality onto other people. Have you heard that before? Have you said that before? I've said that before. 
I'll rebuke myself. <laughs> Legislating morality is an inescapable concept. It's another one of those, not whether, but which. You are going to legislate morality. The question is, whose morality? Which system of morality are you going to legislate? Do you, do you see that? Any legislation, you shall not steal. You know, what R.C. Sproul said that anytime someone object, objects to um, legislating morality, take their wallet. <laughs> because what, you're trying to push your morality on me that says I can't steal your wallet? You hypocrite, right? Everyone enforces their morality on to other people. The question is whose moral standards are we going to go by? Is it going by God's standards or by fallen man's standards? That is the question. You know, and um, as, a, as a side note here, when we're, we're wrapping up close, almost. This is relevant in the terms of legislating morality. The, the weapon that the opponents of Christ would use in this type of debate is saying, what are you saying? We should be a theocracy? So let's talk about theocracy for a second. Theocracy, rule of God. Theocracy is another one of those inescapable concepts. There is going to be a God at the top of every system. The question is, which God? Because there has to be an ultimate standard. There has to be a law giver. There has to be an ultimate moral being. Currently, we live in a democracy, and the God is Demas, the people, the rule of the people. And so what is good and right and true is subject to change with the changing moral opinions of the people. I forget who said it, but uh, democracy is like two wolves and a lamb. Um, trying to decide who's for dinner or what's for dinner. Democracy isn't <laughs> really a good thing because if you've got two wolves and you're a lamb, you're out of luck, right? So theocracy is an escapable concept. The question is, who's the Theo? Who's the God at the bottom of the system? And so there, there's different ways, and I wouldn't recommend going right out and saying, hey, let's establish a theocracy just because it's a loaded term right? And, and as, just to be clear, as Christians, we don't believe in forced conversions. We believe in freedom of religion, right? We've already talked about that. Um, but we do believe that God is the ultimate authority, and He has the best standards of what is good and righteous and just. So, uh, winding down, this is the end of sort of the, my theological argument for why Christians should care about politics. And it's this, it's since civil government was established by God to be stewarded under his authority, Christians have the responsibility to see that sphere of authority submitted to the will of God as revealed in his word. And this is good and this is loving, right? So that's where we've been. Now, to close, I wanna just include some, a selection of quotations from early American history to show that this isn't anything new. What I'm talking about isn't anything new. 
that I'm not some alt-right person who's trying to, you know, be a racist bigot and take over the world, right? This is mainstream Christianity, and this is nothing new in American history. And, and these are just a handful of selections. I could have spent a whole time reading them. And as I get into this, I guess this is a good time to say this. I would encourage you guys, whenever you have time, I know you're reading all the time, but whenever you have some time to read on the topic of history, read the original sources. Read John Adams. Read Samuel Adams. Read John Hancock. Read John Jay. Read Thomas Jefferson. You'll be surprised at the things Jefferson says. Read them in their own words, and you'll be surprised how Christian they sound compared to what your textbooks say about them. So that's free. That's in there. So listen to these. Before we get straight into the quotes, listen to this. One scholar uh, conducted a selective survey of American documents from 1760 to 1805. He found that the book of Deuteronomy was quoted or referenced more than any other book. Here's what he said. You take all the documents, American documents that this guy could find from 1760 to 1805, you collate them together, which book is referenced or quoted the most? It's the book of Deuteronomy. Not just the Bible, Deuteronomy, the one you skip over in your quiet times. <laughs> the most quoted book in early American history. Listen to this. Y'all know who John Locke is? John Locke, very influential thinker. You know, he, he sort of propagated the right to life, liberty, and property ideas, right? Um, and so Deuteronomy is cited in this survey almost twice as often as John Locke's entire corpus. Everything John Locke ever wrote versus the single book of Deuteronomy, the early American founders quote Deuteronomy almost twice as much as John Locke. So just showing you, just trying to demonstrate the, the error that America was founded in. John Adams, our second president, says, because we have no government armed with the power of capable, sorry, armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion, avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. The founders' biggest fear was not foreign invasion. It was the decline of morality among the American people because they knew that when virtue and morality declined, that the system of government that they had set up in the Constitution was not strong enough to hold it together. You need a big sword when sinners go wild. But when they're restrained by the word of God and by religion and morality, there's freedom. Samuel Adams, he's known as the father of the American Revolution, and he makes good beer. He says, the rights of the colonists may be best understood by reading and carefully studying the institutes of the great lawgiver and head of the Christian church, which are to be found clearly written and promulgated in the New Testament. Sam Adams, guys, saying, you wanna understand the rights 
of the colonists, you need to look to the New Testament. There's where you will find them. Hmm. Here's another quote from Sam Adams. He's got a bunch of them. This is, this is what he said after signing the Declaration of Independence. He proclaimed, We have this day restored the sovereign to whom all men ought to be obedient. He reigns in heaven. And from the rising to the setting of the sun, let his kingdom come. That gave me chill bumps, guys. They, they just signed the Declaration of Independence, declaring independence from George, King George, history people. Yeah. And he says, we have restored the sovereign, not the king over there, who has been treasonous against his covenants, but the true sovereign to whom all men ought to be obedient. That's, that's good. This is the first Thanksgiving proclamation, proclamation, 1777, from the Continental Congress. It says, It is therefore recommended to the legislative or executive powers of these United States to set apart Thursday, the 18th day of December next, for solemn thanksgiving and praise, that with one heart and with one voice the good people may express their grateful feelings of their hearts and consecrate themselves to the service of their divine benefactor, and that together with their sincere acknowledgments and offerings, they may join the penitent confession of their manifold sins, whereby they had forfeited every favor, their humble and earnest supplication that it may please God through the merits of Jesus Christ, mercifully to forgive and blot them out of remembrance, that it may please him graciously to afford his blessings on the governments of these states respectively, and prosper the public counsel of the whole, to inspire our commanders both by land and sea and all under them with that wisdom and fortitude which may render them fit instruments under the providence of Almighty God to serve for these United States the greatest of all blessings, independence and peace, that it may please him to prosper the trade and manufactures of the people and the labor of the husbandmen, that our land may yield its increase, to take schools and seminaries of education so necessary for cultivating the principles of true liberty, virtue, and piety under his nurturing hand, and to prosper the means of religion for the promotion and enlargement of that kingdom which consisteth in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Continental Congress of the United States of America, 1777. You see that? This new nation that they are establishing, what are they praying that God would do? That they would bless it so that the kingdom of Christ would be enlarged. Again, you probably aren't hearing that in your history class, but it's right there in the ink. And the last quote I have for you is John Jay the first American Supreme Court justice. He established a lot of our case law. And in those case law, he's constantly referencing Exodus, Deuteronomy, as, as justifications for his rulings. He says this, and he has got a bunch of really good quotes if you want to look them up. He says, Providence has given, Providence has given our people the choice of their rulers. And it is the duty, as well as privilege and interest, 
of a Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. John Jay, first Supreme Court Justice. Listen to what he says. God has given us the opportunity to choose our rulers. Therefore, it is our duty, not to mention a privilege, but is our duty and our interest as a Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. So faith is a test for a vote, according to John Jay. Not according to Russell Moore, <laughs> Southern, uh, former Southern Baptist. This is ironic. Think about that, guys. For real, let that sit with you. You live in a nation that God has put you in by no doing of your own, and he's given you a choice in your rulers. Is it not your duty to ensure that those rulers are righteous, that they are just, that they submit to the king of the rulers of the earth? This is basic, but we have been, self-included, discipled in a secular culture that would teach us the opposite of that. That we would assume that there could be some sort of neutral sphere of government where a state can just sort of ride the fence. But Jesus says, you're either with me or you're against me. Jesus promises to bless those who are faithful to him. And those who are not receive curses. And if we're going to steward that responsibility well, God has given it to us to do that. So those are a lot of early Americans. I've been listening to some early church biographies and I just want to close with this example from Ambrose. Ambrose's early church father. Um, I, I just left my mind. The emperor at the time of Ambrose, <laughs> he had a quick temper and some stuff went down in um, Thessalonica and he called the people of Thessalonica into this. Uh, a riot had broken out because of a... Uh, uh, what do they call it? Where the elephants, not a carnival, uh, the Ringling Brothers, circus, kind of circus idea. This sort of thing was going on. Carnival type thing was happening. And, uh, and they, they, he, the emperor shut it down. The people didn't like it and started killing people. <laughs> I was like, man, that's some good circus entertainment right there. <laughs> and so to shut down this riot and to take revenge, um, I, can't, I wish I could remember his name. It just slipped my mind. I thought I wouldn't forget it, so I didn't put it in my notes. But anyways, he gathers the people of Thessalonica into this arena and then has the, the military surround the arena and slaughter them all. Thousands were killed in that one thing. Well, this was a Christian emperor. And Ambrose was the bishop. And he sends a letter to the emperor saying, you will not receive the Lord's Supper until you publicly repent for what you did. And he refused. He didn't, he didn't respond to Ambrose. One day, Ambrose is uh, getting ready to, to, to lead the service on the Lord's Day, and he gets word that the emperor has come to church to receive the Lord's Supper. Ambrose goes out and meets him and says, in, in, in very eloquent words, essentially this, you will not receive the Lord's Supper until you publicly repent 
for your murder of these people. Knowing it's the emperor. The Roman emperor could have him killed on the spot. But he feared God more than he feared the emperor because he knew that the emperor served God. And, and the emperor was convicted of his sin and went into the church, lied prostrate in front of the church, confessed his sins, and received the Lord's Supper. And him and Ambrose were buddies for the rest of their life. It's a pretty cool story. But you see, even there from the earliest days of Christian history, that this minister in the civil sphere had sinned and the Christian pastor, the bishop, held him accountable to the Lord and exercised discipline on him within his sphere of authority. You see, Ambrose, that was his sphere, the Lord's Supper. He, he didn't organize a coup to have this emperor thrown out. He exercised discipline where he had authority. And so we see even that concept of sphere sovereignty going all the way back. So how do we walk away from this sort of topical thing um, with application to our lives? I think it's pretty obvious, but first is living quorum Deo includes your political life. Living all of your life before the face of God includes your political life. Acknowledge and submit to the sovereignty of God in every sphere. In every sphere in which you have authority, acknowledge and submit to the sovereignty of God in that sphere. Do not be ashamed of doing public theology. Here's the reason why I think a lot of us want to play the neutral game, because we're embarrassed to stand in the public sphere and say, because God says so. Why is it wrong to murder a child in the womb of its mother? Because God says you shall not kill. Well, you can't say God says. You're not God. I can say God says because God says. And you know God says that. And he's going to hold you accountable to that. He will judge you. And there is grace in his son Jesus for all lawbreakers, for all the unrighteous like myself. There's grace in Jesus. But if we don't say God says, we can't give them the gospel. And so we need to stop being ashamed of being Christians in the public square. We're going to have to say because God says or because the Bible says, because God says so. Right. And he's God and we are not. Hold the civil magistrates at every level accountable for obedience to Christ and his law. If the mayor gets out of line, according to the standards of God's law, hold him accountable. He's not above correction. Don't just send letters to your president and your senators who have their interns forward the pre-filled out you know, form. Hold all civil magistrates at every level accountable for obedience to Christ and his law. Here's one, police officers. You wanna talk about a role that can be usurped and a role that can be filled lawlessly, there's one, right? And this leads to the next kind of subpoint is don't just ride the party line. So you can be a Christian and criticize police officers. You can also be a Christian and uphold and promote police officers. You can be a Christian and criticize unjust war. And you can be a Christian and uphold just war, right? don't feel like you have to ride a party line 
um, in order to be faithful to Christ because what your goal is to be faithful to Christ. Now, I will say there, it should be pretty obviously uh, in, in, in which parties are closer to that line. But at, at a point, you're still going to have to stand up to people within your party and call them the faithfulness in Christ. And here's the final point. With all this said, preach the gospel. Preach the same gospel that Ambrose preached. <laughs> preach the same gospel uh, that the reformers preached. Preach the same gospel that St. Andrew preached when he went to the Roman governor and told him that he who rules men should know him by whom he is ruled. And that Roman governor sent St. Andrew to a cross. But here's why we preach the gospel. Because only the gospel changes hearts. Legislation handed down from Congress can't change a heart. Can't turn a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. It can't turn a heart that loves sin and injustice into a heart that loves peace and righteousness. It can't do that. Only the gospel can do that. See, change hearts lead to changed lives. Changed lives lead to changed families. Changed families lead to changed societies. And may Christ get the glory of it all.